Sit back in your seats, get something to eat, and watch this movie. Don't let the kids see it, because, well, then, let, we'll let you hear the, the um, video first. Thank you. All right, we are here today to discuss Martin Scorsese's 2013 movie Wolf of Wall Street. And with me, I have uh, Mike from the Turn Leftist podcast, James, uh, founder of Comrade Workwear, and Chris, uh, BX Pro. Thank you all for joining here. Thanks for having us. How's it going? Thanks for having us. Absolutely. And I know, uh, you know, James, and uh, you have a, a, a work, uh, cl- you can describe your brand in uh, better words than I can. Yeah, well, it's easy to call it a socialist enterprise when I'm the only worker, you know. So, um, but yeah, I uh, like a year ago, I made like a random tea design for a local bar over here, and then my girlfriend was like, "You should do this." And I was like, "That's a bad idea." And now it's a year later, and I have a whole parallel line, and we just have like socialist messaging and uh, you know dumb stuff that's fun to get people's reaction out in the streets. Yeah, and I connected to Mike you from your uh, podcast and some other a couple other different groups uh not that long ago and uh you know it's good to have you on yeah thanks for having me i think uh the intervention i think is the one who put us in touch i believe um i could be mistaken. maybe it was either him or collective action comics could be nat yeah i think it was nat and collective action comics but yeah it was uh it's good to, to good to have you on and to to chat and i know uh we'll be discussing uh you know pretty interesting movie chris uh what do you think of this uh had you seen it had you seen this before now yeah, I saw the, hey, I'm Chris, I'm BX Pearl. Uh, you can find me on BX Pearl on, on most of my socials. And uh, Evan, I just want to uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I saw the movie in 2013, 2014, and I actually rewatched it this morning. Uh, and as I was watching it, I was looking at uh, some of the notes you gave me on some of your ideas. And I was taking notes myself. And I don't think in 2013 I was like really a full-on communist so um it's i just watch it through a completely different lens now and uh, i have a lot to say yeah it's it's one of those movies that i think i too when i saw it when it first came out i was not i don't i don't think i watch really any movies with the same kind of lens you're you at least i do now you know as that's what we're doing here but i don't know it's a it's a pretty crazy movie and i think one thing before we get into like the plot i think it kind of might set the stage is that martin scorsese who you know from all his lots of gangster movies he did not refer to this movie as satire, whereas the star of the movie, Leonardo DiCaprio, called this movie a satire in an interview on, um, what was it? Uh, the Charlie it Rose. The, Charlie Rose. Charlie, right? Charlie Rose. Rose. And yeah. I, I think that's like a good, almost like a good jumping off point because to, to consider all of the insanity of this movie and the insanity of just the 80s and 90s and Wall Street, and this to not be viewed through the idea of being a satire, I think is just, I think that's crazy. Um, and you said James just before it's all the st- places you read about this movie. It's like, oh, the satire about Wall Street. And every single YouTube video, they're like the greatest satire ever made. And then, <laughs> like literally in like interviews, he's like, I have no obligation to critique society at all. The fuck, like <laughs> literally in like a lot of interviews, he's like, that's <laughs> that's a different thing. That ain't me. Yeah. What I is mean, art for again? Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the source the source material for this book, just as a quick backdrop, is a book called Wolf of Wall Street, written by the main character uh, Jordan Belfort. So he was taking the source material, and he claims, you know, I'm just telling what's on the pages. You know, I'm not really here to tell you to give you an idea. I'm just here to tell you the crazy shit that Jordan Belfort went through at his at his uh, you know shady ass uh, Wall Street firm. Yeah, but that's the thing is even like the shady ass bit of it, like even while that stuff is going on and after everything else, all that debauchery, it's not portrayed like uh, it's not like he's having an unbiased look like he's very much like thinking like this is sick. Like what an amazing party of a life this is. You know, it's not like let me just tell this story. He wants to be the main character of this story. When I was watching it earlier today, because I also watched it, uh, I didn't finish it, but um. I was taking a bit, a little bit of notes and I had forgotten like the order of the scenes. Like you remember a lot of these scenes because a lot of them stick out to you, but like the opening scene is literally the commercial for Stratton Oakmont. And it's like the lion. It's like a very professional looking commercial. And then they quick cut to them 
throwing a little person at a target in like a suit that they dress them up in with a helmet and everything like very demeaning. And then it goes right from that to the Jordan Belfort character who of course, like I want to mention like a little bit about the casting. First of all, like they picked Leonardo DiCaprio who usually plays like a heroic or good guy or is like viewed to be like a, what do you call it? Like a Chad. It's like, he literally is a meme from, if not this movie, like from other movies, like as a Chad. And so they start with him and then he's immediately bragging about all his commodities. Like he first starts with his car then his house, and then his wife, like in that order. And then briefly, very briefly, just mentions that he has kids and then starts listing the boats and the horses and all the other properties and everything that he has. So it's just like, it's just very funny. And like, I feel like all of that is very intentional. For me, uh, my first impression of rewatching it, I, the first thought that came to my head was like, this is the Scarface of capitalism. And like, I say that because when I, when I saw Scarface, I was like, whoa, this should scare me away from, you know, uh, that type of life and that type of, of, of uh, you know, selling drugs and everything. But what a lot of people got from Scarface was like, I want to live that life. That is the coolest thing. You see guys with Scarface posters. They completely get a different picture of what, you know, uh, you know uh, drug uh, trafficking is all about. And for me, as a socialist, I watched this and I am absolutely disgusted by Jordan Belfort. He is a protagonist, but he is not a, he's an antagonist. Um, but you see a lot of like these libertarian bros. He is not even to this very day looked at as, as like a, a negative figure in society. He has a big following. He's like a, a Tony Robbins motivational speaker type guy. And uh, it's like, you know, it's like he's revered and respected not just for who he is now, but a lot of for a lot of the things he did back then. Oh yeah, even in like an interview, like leading up to the uh, the the movie, I think Leo came in and was like fully celebrating this guy. I think he was like, if, if you don't mind me, he goes, um, "What separates Jordan's story from others uh, like it is the brutal honesty in which he talks about the mistakes that he's made." And then he kind of goes on. He's like, I've been in his company like many times and there's nothing quite like Jordan's public speaking and his ability to train and empower young people. And it, then he calls him a shining example of like the transfer, the transformative qualities of ambition. And, and it's like, it, if you thought this was satire, Leo, then why are you sitting here saying this? Because he, all he's, he's, he's still glorifying him even in the, like the, the, the lead up to the movie, like being unveiled. So there, it just, there is nothing about it that is doing anything but saying that this is um, like a type of person to, to look up, to try and be. Um, and there was one YouTube, like, um, I don't know, like commentary or analysis thing. And they're like, what's the three ways to view that last scene, you know, where they're all like watching him in, in the talk. Uh, and there's like, and it was stupid for me to watch it because I'd already heard from Evan about the that interview where he's like, this is not satire. So I knew going on, whatever this guy was going to say about this last scene was going to be bullshit. Uh, but there was like the first one, which was the lights coming from the back. It's like a movie projector. Like this is like a reflection of us as an audience that we want this thing. We celebrate this thing. And I think from like a U.S. sense or like from a global capitalist sort of like whatever sense, we kind of do. Uh, but the last thing that he had said was, was that we we like to be exploited. You know, he points to like the scene where um, he's got the candle wax dripped on him. Uh, he gets to that scene where uh, he's like talking about like how everyone just wants to be rich and they want to do it uh, quick and with, you know for free with like no effort or whatever. And I thought that it was this really um, kind of like important way about the, the way that the, the film portrays it, which is <laughs> it's that, Jordan is just like anyone else. He's just doing what anyone in his position would do. Like if any of us were there, that's just who we would be. And I think that is, I mean, for me, that was just Scorsese. He's like, I want to be that. But yeah. Worse than even like glorifying it, because there's at no point does the movie really paint Leonardo DiCaprio's character as like a horrifying bad example. Like, even when he's doing bad things, like, he's almost crashing a helicopter and killing the innocent pilot next to him because he's just got a drunk, arrogantly fly the helicopter. It's like, you could just let the fucking pilot do it. Like, it's his job. Like, let the professional guy do it. But you have to be the... That was also in the first scene. Like, it really stuck out to me because, like, 
so many rich people actually do die in like helicopter crashes. Like that's yeah. a really risky behavior to do. It's like it's like the modern day guillotine. If that if not that, it's like a Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> but like it's just like really horrifying because even that is like it not only makes it like glorifies that level of like wealth and opulence and just grotesqueness, but it makes I think people who haven't achieved that kind of success feel like they could also do that thing and be like, oh, no, I'm just like Jordan Belfort. I'm not like an alcoholic. I'm not like abusing my partner. I'm just like, uh, I'm like a cool uh, Chad guy. Like, I'm just like, I'm too powerful for this situation. Like, I just need to break out. It's like, no, bro, you like, you need to go to therapy. Like, oh, no, 100%. It's like, uh, who's the motherfucker uh, not in, Albania, in Albania that's like just got out of prison? Andrew Tate? Like, <laughs> Andrew Tate. This is the Andrew Tate. This Tate mentality. Total Tate mentality. You know, I'm sure having a leftist podcast a continuing theme that you probably have is the commodification of art and you know movies are art and along with just discussing this movie will you know this shows how artwork under a capitalist system is so commodified and how such horrible things and horrible people are glorified um, in such a way how it's really only leftists or socialists as we are can look at this and be like, oh my God, this is horrible. And how, you know, other people just think, oh, that's cool how he almost crashed the helicopter. It's cool how he drove his Ferrari all the way home and crashed it and hit all these, you know, all, all these different things and almost killed other people. Um, but, you know, uh, when, when we really think about it, I, I think about like comments that George Lucas has made. And have you ever spoken about this? In Not any specifically of the other about the George episodes? Lucas. I actually had that video of him. I think it's pinned on my account. But it's, it's yeah. slight. I mean, I think in one of the interviews with Scorsese, he basically says something to the effect of like, Hollywood dictates you have to make a certain kind of movie to make profit. And he claims that he doesn't subscribe to that and he can just make whatever he wants. I think that's maybe he thinks that's true, but I don't think that's true at all. I think he makes a movie he knows is going to be celebrate like this movie was cost 100 million dollars it made 406 million that is a blockbuster movie you know and it won academy awards or maybe it didn't win any it was nominated for some but you're right though any movie where your goal is profit is obviously going to be inherently flawed in some in some way whether it's deeply flawed like this movie probably is and then you know some movies that are you know can can inject a little more uh, actual thought in them. Not to say this doesn't have any natural actual thought, but I think of like triangles of sadness or like movies that have a little bit more to say about the system, whereas this is just glorifying capitalism. What if Boots Riley made Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah. <laughs> uh, they would have been like a guillotine in the office or something. I don't know. Great. So do we want to look into, were we going to look into the scenes, like go through the storyline at all? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that the, well, you mentioned Mike, the kind of the beginning, kind of the, the laying out of the start of, him going back, which is a pretty common Scorsese tactic of having a narrator and kind of going through the story. But I think what's interesting is the, I think the very first scene after that, when he meets um, with uh, Matthew McConaughey's character, and he's kind of like getting the lay of land, he's like fresh out. He doesn't know what he's doing. He just wants to be rich. He just thinks like, I go to Wall Street, I'm going to be rich. And one of, among a long lot of comments during that conversation with um, Matthew McConaughey's character, I thought was interesting. He says to, to, to him, uh, number one rule of Wall Street, nobody. I don't care if you're Warren Buffett, Jimmy Buffett. No one knows if a stock's going up and down, sideways or in circles. You know what? It's a fugazi. You know, saying that it's just, it's fake. The entire system is fake. And I feel like that's like the one moment, I think, where Scorsese does uh, actually kind of give us a good telling of what Wall Street really is, that the people who work there know it's all made up and bullshit. And he's telling him that, and he still doesn't care. He still will use this numbers on a screen to just become a millionaire. And I think that's like indicative of, of most people who work on Wall Street. They know. I mean, I, I would say yes and no to that. I, I, before I became a uh, socialist, I, I, I was an uh, official Robinhood trader. I did a lot of trading on Robinhood and uh, penny stock. I was doing penny stocks. I was doing day trading and swing trading. I don't know if you know what swing trading is, but when you do day trading, all your trades going to happen in a day and swing trading is over a few days, but you really get to like measure candlesticks and, and the different patterns of stock. And you really do a lot of, and, and there are people that teach you how to read the charts and, and it's not an exact science because, you know, uh, 
someone might say something, Trump might say something and crash the stock or something might happen. There are a lot of different variables, but there is insider trading that a lot of our elected officials do, especially at the federal level. And there's also high frequency trading that happens at the highest levels like Goldman Sachs. They have this high frequency computerized uh, trading where they're trading at the, like milliseconds. And they're just siphoning off billions and billions of dollars by this high frequency trading. There are ways to definitely choose. Is it true? System. I've heard that like they will compete to be the closest to the place where the trades happen because just a millisecond of like bandwidth yes. length is that's yeah. crazy. Like being a gamer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of high frequency trading occurs across the river from lower Manhattan in New Jersey. So nuts. Um, that's where a lot of the computers are. Where they do that. There was one thing that I was noticing, just like getting back to like um, that beginning scene with Hannah in that like dining room, um, where like obviously um, Jordan Belford or you know Leo in this uh, like he's trying to get rich, but it's at an earlier stage in his like journey, and um, you know he's like, oh well, if I can make them money while I'm making me money, you know it's like mutually advantageous or something, and. I saw him, well, obviously, like, over the course of, of the movie, we see him effectively become, like, a full-blown sociopath, um, you know, and, like, there's all, all the studies about sociopathy and, like, compassion draining as, as people's wealth in, uh, increases, and so I thought that was kind of interesting, but it was kind of a cool moment to see someone at, like, an earlier stage of ideology, like, thinking about the system from, like, the way that it's sort of, like, professed or shown. He's like, oh, we're here. This is the job we do. You know, this is the service that we provide to society kind of a thing. The way that they'll talk about it, you know, they're like, oh, well, you know, BlackRock or Vanguard or whatever, like they're helping pension funds. You know, like, you know, that's that's what they're doing. They're out here like working for the working man. But it was just kind of a thing where you see him starting here being like, knowing this is a way to get rich, uh, but also thinking about a service that he's providing to people. And that that is something that could be good for him and good for society. And like over the course of the movie, you see him lose all faith. You know, effectively, he learns the reality of it and, you know, goes from I don't want to like fuck over these rich clients to being like, I'm going to give garbage. I think he says verbatim, I'm going to I'm selling garbage to garbage. Men. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, in that opening scene you were just talking about, I think Hannah says to him that your job is to move money from the client's pocket to your pocket. Yeah, not to make you both money, and I think, I think that was like his awakening into seeing the true nature of many or most of these traders. If you want to succeed, you have to be ruthless. Mm. I, mean, I think that's the that's just general the general take of capitalist, you know, economics is the more most ruthless person will, if they have some advantage, obviously, you know, uh, personal wealth, they can succeed. Yeah, he even says in that scene. It's honestly, you could tease out so many ways to like understand capitalism that where he talks about revolutions, he's keeping them on the Ferris wheel. And it really just talks about like the idea of infinite accumulation. And I remember when that point came up, uh, I realized that there's like two levels to that because there is the individual level of uh, wealth accumulation. You're like, I'm trying to get rich. I'm trying to, you know, whatever. Um, and that that's that's the sort of like gambling mentality where you're like, well, I'm just going to keep getting in because I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to keep winning. I'm going to keep whatever, whatever. And when you're talking about rich people, it's like they can lose and still be winning. Um, and obviously, like when you're selling garbage to garbage men, they're losing more often and they're losing everything. Uh, but then I thought about the other side of infinite accumulation, which is more on just like the business side of that, which is more of the imperative. It's like having to constantly grow or something. And so it was just kind of this cool moment where I thought they were expressing like a deep contradiction inherent in capitalism and this sort of like systemic drive and talking about in a way where if you said it to anyone left to right they would agree with you but if you if we talked about it in this from this standpoint from like a marxist analysis all of a sudden be like no 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 no, no that's not it but you know when they're saying it point blank from a celebrant standpoint it was just right there i think i think the growth and competition um, contradictions of capitalism are, are so important and also addiction. I don't know if we're going to talk about addiction later, um, but you see his addiction progress as time goes on. Um, 
And the other thing about like how he loses his conscience more and more as the movie goes on. I, I don't know if, if uh, you've ever seen this movie, but I, the young Karl Marx, there's a scene in this movie that I talk about a lot where he, he kind of corners this capitalist and he, he confronts him about why do you hire child labor? And the capitalist, you know, he's a wealthy businessman, owns a factory, and he says, I have to, I have to have child labor because my competition has child labor. I know it's wrong, but if I don't do it, I will lose. And this is a system based on winning and losing. So, you know, it's not that capitalists are inherently immoral. It's that the system makes individuals do immoral things, and it kills your conscience as time goes on. You just become desensitized to it. People become desensitized to anything. Look, I'm in the medical field, and I, and, and I think about some of the things that I saw when I started. Um, I'm in the emergency medical services and stuff that I see now, and I am completely desensitized to the most horrific things now. Um, and it's just how, how the nature of whatever industry you're in. Um, and he would just be okay with defrauding anyone. And at the very end, the very people who helped him get wealth uh, become rich. He completely sold them all out. Sorry to jump to no, the that's end. Fine. <laughs> I think it's worth noting, like in that first scene when he starts listing his drug addictions, because like once he is finished listing all his properties and his commodities and everything he owns, then he starts listing the various things that he takes. He lists like a literally unrealistic amount of drugs for a single human being to take in a day like i really think that would just kill somebody but then he also lists or he just says his favorite drug of all is money like he says that at the very end it's like this is the one and i think that's very telling there's that one scene once he leaves the first place that he's at like he starts his first day and he gets in this atmosphere it's like the sweaty back room and you see the contrast between what they're saying on the phone to people they're sounding very professional on the phone but then you obviously see they're cursing at each other. They're calling everybody cunts and everything. Like they're just, and he revels in it. Like he fucking loves it. Anybody else would be like horrified and be like, no, that doesn't seem like a good work atmosphere. It sounds like it's pretty shitty, actually. And of course, there's that meme worthy first lunch, like you guys were talking about with McConaughey. But then when that job ends, like that job there is actually pretty short. That company goes out of business and he starts his own. Or like, no, sorry, he goes to the penny stocks guys. That's what gives him the idea. Yeah. yeah. So then he uh he really impresses them. And I think that this scene alone, like this one couple minute phone call that he has where he makes $2,000 just on like a cold call in like 1989 money or whatever year that was. It's like, so that's, it's not nothing like that's pretty fucking huge. And then you see him like it just quick cuts to him making like $70,000 a month. And that's when he meets the um, Jonah Hills character who like yeah, literally just sees how rich he looks and just wants to come work for this guy. But I think what people kind of miss in that whole scene is, well, first of all, like the commissions, he's like, you get 50% commission. He's like, oh, when I was working for the rich people, we'd get 1% or whatever it was commissioned. Those guys do not pay the premium for the sales of the stocks. Whereas the poor people, we gouge the fuck out, like literally gouge the fuck out of them. And I think a lot of people miss that. But then they see the scene where he just makes so much money with a cold call. And they're like, they get stars in their eyes. And like, how do I become a stockbroker? Like, I guarantee you this movie alone and that scene prompted a lot of young alienated men to be like, I got to go to financial school. I got to go like get my fucking CPA. They're like, whatever bullshit you got to do. Like, it's the Scarface effect. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. It inspired guys like, I want to be like Scarface. I want to be a, a drug dealer or whatever, you know. Literally, a drug trafficker. A friend of mine has a song called Jordan Belfort. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> but that whole part you're talking about where he meets the, the people selling penny stocks, I think, so this is one scene I thought was pretty interesting and there isn't that much with his original wife. I think her name is uh, Teresa. Yeah. And... She says to him when he's who was very nice and pretty, by the way. Like, yes. what the fuck? Like, she was literally the mother that ha- Ted found. Yeah, you know? yeah. I was like, I forgot that was her. <laughs> but she says to him, like, are you, should you really be selling? I don't have the exact quote, but she's basically saying, like, should you really be like screwing over working class people? Because he's literally selling to mailmen and garbage men, and basically selling them out of like their life saving. And she's like the only like little voice of reason in the entire movie. There's no other person, I think, in the entire time who has any conscience. She, she does. The okay, father, but he also sees the money coming in, and he's like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll kind Rob of... Rob Ryan's character was fucking hilarious. So. <laughs> he was very good. But that's, that was like the transition when he realizes that it didn't matter who he was talking to. If he could convince them of his vision, he could sell them. He could sell, you know, was like selling a ketchup popsicle to a person and a woman in a white dress. I mean... 
he could he could sell anything to anyone, and that's what he was teaching his company as he op- he opens his company, um, and he's basically bringing a bunch of misfits who aren't are the people who probably are the ones you like you said, Mike, who wanted to go out and become stock traders after this. Like that's the you know his friends from high school who are all you know drug dealers mm-hmm. or like one of them was a lawyer who ends up fucking him over at the end anyway. So it's like the slide. Yeah. Also, it was just funny. Like the whole reason he even ended up in this penny stocks place was just like the cyclical crises of capitalism. You know, they're talking about that Black Friday or whatever it was where the market crashes. And it's like that happens every seven years. <laughs> so it was just another funny moment where Scorsese doesn't realize the thing that he's saying, you know. It's only because of government, bro, that that happens every seven years. If we just had like a real free market, then those crashes would not happen. They are totally not a feature of capitalism. Like there's no kind of inherent cycle there. No, 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 no. It's, it's government regulation that's actually fucking us all over. Mm-hmm. No monopoly has ever been created by itself. That's all the <laughs> government. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was, it reminds me of recently I was saying is they always name, like every recession has like different names associated with them. And I think it's, because if they didn't, it would just be like, oh, it's just, wh- why is this always happening? But it's like, oh, it's because of the housing. That's the only reason this happened. Oh, it's because of the, you know, COVID. That, I mean, granted, those things were factors, of course, but it's also because of the recklessness of uh, the people who have no regulations on them. Do you guys ever have a cat and you like put your hand under the blanket and they chase it and then you move it and then they chase it again and they don't learn because it's a cat? Isn't that funny how that works? Like. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, who's the cat? Are we the cat? <laughs> well, and there's something funny I also want to mention. I know this is it's kind of random, but it's something that I thought was interesting. Is that apparently when this movie came out, uh, DiCaprio and Scorsese were invited to the White House to do like a private screening before it came out, and they like jumped on a plane to like go there in the middle of the you know. One, I mean, of course, like you're invited to go to the White House. I understand, like you know, most people probably wouldn't turn that down, but I think it's hilarious to see them sitting there with Obama watching this movie, given what he didn't do after the 2008 crash, I think is just a, a nice juxtaposition. Yeah, it was two of, years after, or it was, it was four years after that. Four right? years after, after he just four let all after. of them off scot-free. With Timothy Geithner as his chief economic advisor, the lead architect in, in creating the crash. Yeah, it's like, yeah, the, the foxes are in the hen house. Um, but I think that the point now is where they've, he's now opened, created his firm and it's they're trading in penny stocks. They're giving, making lots of commission, but they realize to be respected. I think that's another thing about this movie too is that more than anything, I think Jordan Belfort wanted to have like respect from Wall Street. He wanted to see him as like an equal, and so they make up kind of they, the name they give the company is like very much like sounds like a country club. You know, it sounds like a just you know, <laughs> it's just very uh, waspy. Yeah, and so they he builds out this new his firm, and it. it it really like goes from them having like eight guys in a room to like having an entire floor like in Wall Street within a very short period of time because they're just deeply exploiting people, selling them penny stocks and like throwing in some blue chips, you know. So they're trying to legitimize it. But do you think they ever really feel like, do you think he ever believed like what he was doing was legitimate? Like this was like a legitimate business at any point? I, he couldn't have, right? No, no, no. I think that that's what he thinks legitimate business is. I don't think he did because on his first meeting with the FBI agent, he tries to bribe him. And then he says, you know, I have information on all the big firms, Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers and all that. So he knew he wasn't one of the big guys, but he was looking at that moment at taking out the big guys by being an informant right there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. He talks out of both sides of his mouth a lot. Like he, on one hand, admits he's selling garbage to garbage men. He just says... I just figured their money was better off in my wallet than in theirs. Even in the very first scene, when, again, when his wife is on the bus with him, dropping him off at his first day at Wall Street, he says like some shit about, like, I was a ruthless, money-hungry guy, so I came to where people with my attitude and my avarice go, which was Wall Street. So he knew from the start. But at the same time, once they start flashing the first scene, like the first couple of clips of the investigator who's looking into him, DiCaprio's narrating and starts referring to him as a guy who's just jealous, who's like coming after him because he just built something up from nothing. And now this guy is jealous and everybody starts to try and tear you down once you get to this position of power. And it's like, okay, but you know, you're doing fucked up shit. Like, you know, you're doing really shady things. Like 
all the time. It's like one illegal thing after another. And I guess what strikes me about that is that people will still look up to that and be dishonest with themselves and think I could be the guy who just stays one step ahead of the law. Um, I could be like the DiCaprio and then just do it better and do it for longer than he did. But just like, it's like some kind of maze from Squid Game or something. It's like, you will lose that game eventually. Just like this character in the fucking movie you're idolizing did. I don't understand how people still come away with that mindset, but they sure enough do. And I going back to my point earlier, like how many people started getting into like stock trading after this movie? How many of them are like just drug dealers now or like whatever other kind of sales that they leveled out at? Because obviously not everyone gets to the top. You're not all as charismatic or as conniving and as smart as the Jordan Belfort character. So you will you will middle out somewhere and like probably somewhere far nearer the bottom than you want. It's like, it's really disappointing that people just take the wrong message from it though. I actually think I started stock trading for oh, that no. movie. Like when I, when I think about when I started, it was probably around 2013, 2014. And I got so into it. I, I was watching tons and tons. Like I watch socialist YouTubers now. I was watching like trading YouTubers. I mean, when I get into something, I get into it. And I was watching YouTubers on how to read candlesticks and how to try to read these charts and how to tell when a stock is going to rise and fall. I was really, really, really into it. But I saw I was it, it really helped push me into being a socialist. I mean, I remember for 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 an example, I would I would listen to a lot of financial radio, talk radio, and watch all these. And I'll give you an example. Um, GE stock was really, really struggling for like months and months and months. And I remember just listening to week after week, them talking about how the stock is dropping, they're struggling. And I knew what was going to happen. Eventually, a few months later, GE laid off like 40,000 workers, 40,000 workers on the street just to raise their stock price. That was the only reason. And I remember thinking, this is horrible. I, I felt so dirty of what I was doing. I just felt so guilty. Like all I'm doing, all the stock that I own now, is just all this unpaid wages of all the people from all these companies. And I was, I owned Walmart stock, uh, a lot of uh, like dollar store stocks, all these stocks. I felt horrible. And I sold all of it. That, that's the direction it put me. But of course, I don't know what, whatever made me different, but I, I was completely disgusted and horrified. I sold all my stock. And I know there are still socialists who, who have stock, even Frederick Engels. Um, you know, he wrote about how. Throughout his life, he still bought and sold stock and he traded throughout his life. He really never quit doing it, but he did feel guilty. You know, during the day, he would, he would you know, run this, this, uh, this uh, factory where they would uh, manufacture um, cotton that was picked from slaves in the United States. They would manufacture it. And then by night, he would be, you know... Uh, working with Marx and 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 writing about anti-capitalist stuff, and he'll be stock trading. He was also so, hanging out with like the poppers of London and writing editions yeah. of the the, uh, the like London working class or yeah, yeah yeah. So I mean, it it definitely. I wish it would bring more people to realizing how how terrible this is. Um, but most people are not like. Uh, Frederick Engels, or I don't want to put myself in the same category as him, but I was just like, this is terrible. I don't want to be holding on to their stuff. But no, there's something actually I was listening to an interview from like two years ago with Jordan Belfort. Uh, and it was these two just like vanilla ass white boys, both had like perfectly coiffed hair. One kept doing this on the With the Winklevoss twins. <laughs> Basically, they were like, yeah, they were like discount Winklevi. And... <laughs> And uh, there, there was like some moment where Belfort like basically admits that his daughter's a socialist and they'll be like talking about like social issues or whatever. But when he was talking like, cause they were like basic, the Winklevi were like talking about um, like uh, homeless people or, you know, the people that are in like dire straits or in a bad place or whatever. Um, and like what to do about that from a policy standpoint. And basically Belford just like decries all that. He's like, I don't want like any of that like socialist crap or whatever. And it kind of gets to, I think like when it comes to, cause I, I did the penny stock shit for like a whole year. And I think it was after this movie too. Um, and I lost like, I don't know, a few grand. Um, and at that time I didn't have a few grand to lose. You know, it was like my second year in college or something. And, um, I think that the the person that loses or that, that's experiencing it, if 
they bet on GE and GE fires 40K people. And now they just made money. They're just thinking they, you know, they didn't have any, uh, you know, part to play in the layoffs. They just bet good, you know, on the, on the gamble. And if they lose, it's once again, and this is the thing that Belfort's saying, is it's about individual responsibility. And if you lost, it's because you made a bad bet. And I think I, I, you got to imagine this is some kind of like uh, philosophical space that Belfort and his cronies had to sit in, which is if these guys are dumb enough to make this decision, then them losing all their hard earned money is their fucking fault. And I mean, like, clearly he also didn't learn anything, <laughs> you know, he had in that scene where he's like, I don't know, like playing tennis or whatever. It's like, he had a rosy time in prison. He got out super, super early. And then immediately was just like, welcome back to the world with open arms, teaching sales classes. I mean, much worse than that, like his lesson on ethics that he gives very early in the movie, which is money. In addition to saying it's his drug that he's addicted to it. It's in that same sentence. He says, Money makes you a better person. If you just give to like organizations, the right causes, to the churches or whatever, even if those organizations are horrible themselves, like never mind that. He doesn't get into that at all. But like you just become a better person by reputation. Of course, we all know how like success garners you power and reputation in this society, whether it's rightly achieved or not. It's like Elon Musk is another good example of someone who has a socialist daughter uh, because they, they see firsthand like the horrific things that this person has to do to get the wealth that they are so revered for. So yeah, I mean, I don't think that that's a coincidence at all. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that Belfort's uh, daughter was a socialist, but I feel like that makes sense. Didn't come out like outright say... But doesn't agree with her dad, probably. Yeah, basically when he, he was saying that like whenever they have these conversations, she's always saying things that are more socialist in nature. He like then went on to like have this whole China spiel about how it was like ruthless, heartless capitalism that like made them like lift a bunch of people out of poverty, which was... Really funny. I, I don't know. Like, I felt like I was reading a, bins, a business insider op-ed or something. But um, yeah, it was a it was a, it was a hard one to watch, especially if you hear his voice now. It's like listening to Steve-O. Oh no! Oh man! Oh yeah, you know, like how's that thing like over here, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, a lot of drugs. Watched one interview. It's it's Mumble City. This is totally unrelated, but I saw some videos of the guys from Crazy Town earlier today, like, <laughs> and they had the similar problem, like just like years of drug abuse. And they, those guys are I, totally, totally different thing. Like, but <laughs> I also just wanted to ask, like, Evan, did you have any like failed try to get rich quick schemes that also coincided with your radicalization? Because the other two guys have gone. I have a couple myself. I don't know if you want to divulge, but it could be like an impromptu segment. I'm trying to think. I mean, I definitely. I it wasn't during the 2013 time that I bought stuff, but I did. There was a period. Well, I guess it wasn't even that long ago. A couple, I don't know when it was. Maybe five or six years ago, where there was lots of like you know, but you go onto like Reddit and you could see people that are shorting the stock or like doing this to the other. I definitely tried some of that and lost. You know, lost. I don't. I, I would say maybe like you know, fifteen hundred bucks, something like that. But it's nothing, nothing insane. But like that's still. You know, to to Jordan Belfort, he made two grand on his like first little deal. Like that's a lot of money, but yeah, I wouldn't say too many. But that's definitely, uh, I think that counts. Trying to short stock and not knowing what you're doing at all, going off of Reddit. Well, it was 2014, and it wasn't this movie that made me do it. It was poverty, uh, and I was selling. Fair weed. enough. I was selling weed in school to pay through, and I was like, "What's another way?" And I'm sure it was in the back of my mind, like it had sat there. I was like, "I could Belfort right now. I could do it." <laughs> But yeah, I think I literally have a, a, a dummies book on like trading penny stocks or whatever. I was looking at those charts all day too, Chris. But like mine was, um, I had bought um, some Bitcoin in 2016 when it was like very cheap and I held on to it for a while. But like, I was also getting into like watching the, the candlesticks like you were talking about, Chris, and like thinking I was going to be a baller or whatever. I, all I ever did was lose money if I ever tried to trade any. And I eventually ended up watching it get up to like, I don't know what was the peak at that time, like in 2017, like 20,000, and then watch it go back down to like three. Didn't sell it because I just was like, oh, it's going to go back up again. Don't worry. <laughs> like I ended up selling it at like 10,000 and then used that money to buy materials to like fix up my house and then sell it and then end up making more money from that. And what I learned from that experience was that like you will make more money from doing something that actually produces some value for someone um, because that won't go away. Like it's like what I watched happen was my money in this like app go up and then drastically down very quickly 
Whereas like when I sold it and then turned it into something physical that actually improved a, a building that I lived in, I was able to sell that for some actual money that like wasn't going to go away in like the, the blink of an eye because I'd actually like done something productive. But like in the meantime, this is the funny part. When I had first started to see that Bitcoin go up and started to think of myself like, oh, yeah, I made a I didn't just get lucky and just like make a random decision because it was like popular on Reddit that month. No, I was making a totally shrewd financial decision. Like I was definitely like reading the market, bro. Like I was a baller. Right. So I had to think of another way to like parlay those gains that I was making into something else. Right. So I started looking into like what other Reddit ballers were doing. Drop shipping. They were selling T-shirts. They were doing all kinds of things. This was prior to Hustlers University. Oh yeah, way way before. Like there was, there was no misogyny involved, at least in this. Like, <laughs> so, but people would go on like Fiverr, and then you would pay like some person in some global South country to make a design for a T-shirt, and then you would put that T-shirt on Amazon and then sell it in a way where it's like, as someone would buy it, then it would get made and then shipped to them, and then you just sit back and collect profits. Looking into this, I'm like, wow, this seems like it's perfect. Like you just you're paying these people. They're agreeing to the contract for the $5 design that you're paying them for. Total ripoff, by the way. You're absolutely exploiting those people. Like, let's ignore that for the moment. But like, then you just park on Amazon these designs and everything that you're definitely ripping off from other people because you're not coming up with creative designs every time. Like, you're just ripping off whatever is the trend at the time. And I tried this for like a week. And I was like, oh, this is way harder than I expected because literally everyone else is doing this. Like, all of Reddit is trying to do this exact same thing. And that was the curse that I encountered, which was finding all these get-rich-quick schemes as everyone else had already been doing them for months or years on end, and it was like, this is just work. Like I could just, I could just go to work, and then, and then I ended up just work, working in grocery stores. I'm like, this is much less unethical. Yeah, it just seemed better than trying to literally make money for doing nothing at all, other than exploiting some poor people on Fiverr and then selling shitty ass T-shirts that are also made by like some poor people in some sweatshops. Like just all of it is wall to wall bad. Well, Mark Hanna even says in that line, he's like, we don't make anything. We don't build anything. You know, they're literally like creating value off of pure optics. Yeah. So not even widgets. <laughs> <laughs> no widgets involved. You know, it, it just reminds me of like third world capitalism. There are so many hustles. Everyone's got a hustle because you need a hustle. And in the last 40 years of as we've really entered and are, are now deep into neoliberal capitalism, uh, people are all looking for hustles, S things that the third worlders, uh, and I still do use the word third world, the word third world that some people don't like that. I, I could also say developing world, but it's things that they've been doing the entire time because as a worker in, in, in the global South, it really, really sucks. And now we're all looking for those hustles as well, because being a worker just doesn't pay the bills like it did for our parents and our grandparents. And, you know, our, our parents, during that little window of time between World War II and like the early 80s, you could have one parent working and the other parent at home generally. And there was no talk of hustle. You, you know, dad worked the nine to five Monday through Friday, saved enough. And, and a lot of our, a lot of our, not all of our parents, but a lot of our parents were able to do that. That's gone now. So we are all looking into crypto and drop shipping and, and all these other ways to, to make a penny because at work, we're also making pennies. Yeah. I was thinking about the, um, like those hustles too. It's that, you know, well, that was another one too. It was like weed stock was another, like cannabis stock was another oh, yeah. big one that I remember. Oh, well, I, I know what I was going to say is that typically when like, once you find out about like the hustle that people are doing, like you were Mike with the drop shipping, the people have already like who, who it's did it late. first, they all made all the money and then everyone is left doing it. I think the same thing with like the losing money on those shorting stocks. Once someone on Reddit is telling you to do it, Someone's already made all the money. They need someone to hold the bag, and that's me or whoever it is. And that's Leo just, says yeah. it in the movie. Yeah, he does. Because uh, once you've read about it on the headlines, it's too late. Yeah. But I oh, was sorry. Go, go, go. No, no, go ahead. You go. I'm, I'm um, no, there was one thing, and just as four dudes talking about this movie, I feel like it's incredibly important to say um, that one, uh, Scorsese does not know how to write a female character. Um, the misogyny in this movie is rampant and nonstop. Um, and that like the, um, the conflicts between the, the women in the movie and their male counterparts in them seem to revolve around just the simple request to not, um, have another relationship. <laughs> like that's like the main bit. They're like, she's like, 
knows that he's fucking other girls, but like once it's this consistent one, she's like, no, no, no. And then like, honestly, uh, Teresa beating Leah up front of that hotel. I was done. I was like, finally someone. Um, but yeah, that, this movie, I did not realize in 2013, how wildly misogynistic, like, you know, he, he even, you know, you said it at the very beginning, he's like, here's the things, it's my houses, it's my whatever. And then he's like, it's, and then it's the women. They are purely an object to be held and attained in this space. Like stock for them, right? It's like, like stock. Like, it's like the value of them. Yeah, go ahead, Mike. Can I just also note that in that first meeting, the lunch meeting, the, the fucking, we got to pump those numbers up meeting. Those are uh, McConaughey says, the only way I get through this job is cocaine and hookers. Like, they're just both equally drugs. They're just like substances that he needs just to get him through the day. Like, one is not a human being. Like, <laughs> it's very fucked up, but like, just how flippant it is, it just passes by most people, I think. Have you guys heard about the Bechdel test? I literally oh, was yeah. just going to say that exact thing. <laughs> I don't think that any Scorsese movie has ever passed the Bechdel test. Ever. ever. No way. So basically, it's the idea whether there's two women who are talking to each other for more than more than a few minutes without without referring like to more than five, more than five minutes. minutes, and it's not referring to like a man, like a relationship. So just having with a, the male with a yeah. real conversation. And I don't think I, two women talk to each other in this movie at all, except for like the sex workers like on the different like debauchery they're involved in. And or, or maybe one time when like the one woman introduces the other woman, like they're at the party later on when he meets his future wife. But once again, like even how it's portrayed isn't it's once again, like just a glorification. Like uh, there's the, the Jackman article they wrote about this um, of where, I mean, it's, a, it's pretty ruthless, but I kind of fucked with it where it, they were saying that the the movie's actually super fucking like boring. Um, and then he says this, he goes, um, the film's blandness is somewhat disguised by actory shouting, shock cuts, druggy slapstick, and a lot of naked female bit players and extras who are artfully shaven and positioned just so for your viewing pleasure. It's- and that's just, yeah, and that's just a hundred percent. Like honestly, without just that smattering of shit, the movie would be absolute garbage. And every time a woman is done, it's it's once again just saying like it's Scorsese. Scorsese is effect- effectively saying like for me also they are objects to be attained. They're these beautiful, you know, uh, like stocks, the beautiful like piles of money or drugs or whatever to look at, to fetishize and toss away or beat or whatever. They also really don't get into how fucking abusive Jordan Belfort was. Only like at the he, very end, really. Yeah, and it's and it's one scene, but like from all the actual like stories around it, it was consistent. It also uh, happened with Teresa too. Well, that would take away from the fact that him calling him like a hero, like being kind of a hero, if he's constantly abusing women throughout this movie, in, in addition to all the crazy shit he's doing, it'd be a lot harder to to impress upon people like oh this is a a hero that we should all look up to because he attains such great things from nothing which is true misogyny misogyny there's like homophobia i mean it's countless things i'm sure i don't think scorsese had many comments that i saw about that but he was basically saying from what i saw is he was just taking what was in the book he's like this is what is being presented in the book so i'm going to present it to you without any responsibility of that and again like none of that gets called out as bad in the movie. Like when Belfort suffers consequences eventually at the hands of the law, it's like, it's not for any of the awful things he actually does. It's for like technicalities, of course, like was it like not reporting his income in the right way or something? I don't even remember like what was the thing that they got him for, but of course he's portrayed as the victim, even though again, you just see him doing horrific things to everyone along the way. Once he gets any consequences whatsoever, he's just a poor, poor old me. And then he gets his comeback story at the end. Like, they have to end the movie with him coming back and doing his seminars so that you get the idea that he's going to work his way back up from the bottom again, like even after going to jail. Like, uh, it's just like, it's not satisfying in the right way because he doesn't suffer. It's like, you know, when you see Trump go to jail for like the bullshit with Stormy Daniels, it's like, okay, not the war crimes. Like, how about like the real shit that this guy did wrong? Like, Well, that's the thing too. And what's so crazy about the whole thing and what he ends up getting partly busted for is like they're laundering money in into Switzerland, but he already had millions of dollars that he easily could have been satisfied with 
and lived an extremely comfortable life. He's got yachts and cars and everything. But again, it's just the same thing with the idea of capitalism has to grow infinitely. He can't be happy or settle at like any point. That's a really good point because along the way, before it gets to the point of no return, like it's when the law starts to first approach him and say, we're going to come after you. And I think it's his dad who even says they're like at the stables. And he's like, just stop, like just fucking quit. You can leave and you're going to be fine. Like they will leave you alone. You could just go retire. You got plenty of fucking money. Like what more do you need? And then his hubris gets him to continue. He's like, I'm not leaving. And he has that great scene. Like it is a great scene. Like you got to love that scene in the movie. But of course, that's what leads to his downfall. And I think that it's also dangerous in the same way that his portrayal in the entire movie makes people think like, oh, I could do that. Just do it better because I'm going to learn from this guy's example. It's like, no, like you're, you're not getting the right message, which is like everyone gets greedy. That is the nature of the stock market. Like I think he calls it a greed fest. How wild is it, though? Because you're right. Like it's his hubris. He literally has an out. It's right after that scene where he's where he, or like when he is like, I'm, I'm not leaving. And the whole bit is that we've actually seen most of the <laughs> atrocities he's committed at this point. And if he just left right then, the movie would effectively be he does all the bad things. He bails out at the top and then nothing happens. And th- this is another thing I was thinking about. This is the real story. This is the normal story is that all these motherfuckers in general actually will get to the point where they're like, okay, well, the law's at my door. I know I have no fucking, uh, you know, no outs or whatever. And so then they just bail out right then, you know, they leave the company or whatever the hell happens. And there's just no consequences at that point other than like, I don't know, they don't work at that company anymore or like they have to go exploit people in some other way. And it was just wild to me. Um, I mean, it's funny to like see him like crash and burn because of hubris or whatever, but the reality of the situation being like all the other villains that do that did and do exist always have that out. I think one of the reasons that he couldn't get out at that time is kind of intertwined with the fact that he was also an addict and addiction to drugs and alcohol. mean, you know, it is a powerlessness over the substance and an unmanageability of your life as a result. And because he's an addict, he just couldn't, you know, it's not like, and <laughs> And it's funny because, you know, there's not like a, an anonymous uh, fellowship for, for capitalists. Um, so, so he just... Call that the gulag, was, sir. It's kind of the gulag, yeah. So there was no real escape for this. He just he was just on a runaway train down to hitting the bottom. You know, a bottom for an addiction brings you whatever type of life consequences. But we saw a bottom for his addiction and a bottom for his being a capitalist, being the consequences that led him to prison for, for three years. Yeah, the and, and what's the other thing that that we didn't mention at all? We don't have to like go into into detail about it. But there there are a couple, a couple times in the movie where he definitely blames the, like the, he they try and sort of say he only kind of got caught because of like the stupidity of other people. One being his friend uh, is Donnie, and then another one being like Steve Madden, which I think I didn't realize until I saw this movie that that's what happened to Steve Madden, which is crazy because his company is not worth like three billion dollars. He you know, you kind of missed out on that when they when they boot him from the company. But that like pump and dump scheme is what got them a lot of that ill-gotten gains that they had to then, you know, offshore. But he's they're on the boat and he's like blaming, you know, Madden for selling stock when he's not supposed to as like, that's the reason. But when you get into these situations, drug dealing, Wall Street, whatever, there's always going to be someone else who's going to or like in the movie Goodfellas with the guy, you know, selling his uh, his his money or buying coats for his his wives and stuff. There's always someone that's going to want to spend or do something reckless because that's the nature of all of these businesses. We've talked a lot about like these parts of the movie, but there's one thing before we started Evan that we had both said, cause we had wrote all these notes and we realized that for the first, cause it's like a three hour movie. Yeah. Incredibly long. Um, this is not the trill. Um, and I had notes up until like the 30 minute mark. It was like basically right when he starts Stratton Oakmont. And then after that, like there was nothing to look into. Like there was nothing to like to to critique or be analytical about because for you you have a half hour on the front side of him getting to the point of like that that right before the interstellar moment, you know, where it really shoots up. And then just pure party, debauchery, drug use, women, all that stuff for roughly two hours. And then you have like twenty to thirty minutes on the back end where they kind of like 
I mean, I don't want to say Scorsese makes like any statements or has any, but like where there's any actual like meat to the story that for three hours, two hours of it is just like watching white. Yeah. 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 It's just Mimi white dudes, uh, party, you know, it's like watching, a a, a Tate hustler university trailer, you know? Yeah. But yeah, no, it was true. I mean, I had, that's literally the point where I think, I think it's maybe I had a couple notes when he meets the FBI agent on the yacht too, which I think is also an interesting conversation, but I think you're right though. Like the movie, there wasn't much to their lives really other than like this excess of partying and drugs and like what lewds can we get that are the best ones? And you know, what car can we get? What trip can we go on? I mean, you could say in some sense, like you don't want to, not saying you should feel bad for them, but like they lead empty lives like at the, at the core of it. It is great when you see him like, get frustrated at the FBI guy. He's like literally mad at the G man starts throwing his money at him. He's like, he's like, these are just fun coupons. They don't mean anything to me. It's like, you're coping hard, bro. Like that's some obvious cope. It's like, yeah, that may be the case that that money is not anything to you. Like the fact that you have to show off that way, like you have to really be performative that way. It's like, you're very angry and you can tell it's just a great job of acting by Leo. And it's a great job of like just screenwriting and everything to show that this guy is, very frustrated because this is a person who has institutional power over him, despite the fact that he has what is supposed to be the ultimate power in capitalism. Like he has money. He's at the top of the heap in wall street in the USA. It's like, and there is still this guy who makes probably $60,000 a year. I don't know in the eighties, maybe 40. He's insulted by the fact that this guy makes so little and is going to fuck his day up. And is going to like make any difficulty whatsoever for him. That is like totally insulting him. It's like, yeah, it's like the pharaoh having like a slave tripping him. It's like he really is getting mad. And I think that's, yeah, just a very good scene in that way. Anyone else get mad? Like the portrayal of the FBI? In it? I mean, they do make it seem like they're this kind of like, I mean, they make them as the good guy. <laughs> they make them seem almost anti-capitalist, which they're not. But like um, also just the idea that like if bad, you know, if the bad guys are doing the bad things, like they're on their asses. I looked at like the the data on this because we all know what kind of crises have happened over the past two decades. But over the course of those two decades, only uh, 156 cases have ever been brought to like uh, to court at all um, around 10 banks. And after that, uh, 41 people ended up getting tried. And of those 41 people, I think only 23 of them got any um, uh, like in, in that in that. Uh, 46 people, like uh, half of them settled, just settled out of court. There's no criminal record. There's no nothing. And then the other ones all went to like white collar prisons. And uh, I think that the, the stat I saw was something like um, no one served or like almost no one served um, more than 50% of their sentence. Yeah. it's And I think it's important to note why this happened, especially you said in the past uh, two decades, um, because regulatory agencies have had three things go on with them since we've been in neoliberalism. They have, have been deregulated, they've been understaffed, and they are corrupt. And a lot of times, the people in these regulatory agencies are from the industries and institutions that they're supposed to regulate. There's a symbiotic relationship between the two of them where they kind of wash each other's backs. Well, it's funny to me too. I didn't mention this before is they talk about how the SEC has like a regulator coming to their office and like, it's just a toothless agency that's just basically letting them do whatever they want. I mean, and actually I was also going to say is how, how surprising, unsurprising would it be to think at that time that like the big banks like Merrill Lynch and such sent people to work at this place to take it down from the inside because their step like this, this schmuck is stepping on their like, their like legitimate version of banking you know they, they didn't see him as like a legitimate thing which they never really touch on but i guess except for that article they had in like the financial times where they just like shredded him for being like a piece of shit they definitely did like tear him apart and you can tell he takes offense to that like that's the other time that he gets really angry in the movie is when he reads that article and, and they just literally say he's doing what he says he's doing he's like selling shit to garbage men and then they're saying that in the magazine article is like, how dare they accuse me of selling garbage stocks to garbage? It was like, bro, <laughs> like, why are you getting mad at this? But like, I see James where you're coming from with the, the lionizing of the FBI, because like, this is another situation where I think the casting comes into play because it's like everybody else they pick is like kind of like 
uh, weird looking, like all the male characters, even if they're supposed to be like alphas and chads or whatever, there's something kind of strange or weird about them. You got Jonah Hill, you got McConaughey, but looking like old with like an obvious hairpiece. You got all these other like strange characters. Um, but then the FBI guy, he's like a, a handsome looking dude. I, I mean, since this is a, a cinema podcast, I don't usually talk about movies on mine. Did you guys ever watch Super 8? Do you like that movie? Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, Kyle Chandler. Yeah, I love that movie. And that's the only other thing I know that guy from. And so I just kind of have him typecast in my own mind as like a wholesome dad character uh, because of that movie. He was also in and Friday so, Night Lights where he's like the wholesome coach of a football team. Okay, perfect. Yeah. I've never seen Friday Night Lights, but I like that. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, the fact that they pick him, they make him seem like this straight-laced, very just wholesome, he's just a work-a-day FBI guy. As if that's a fucking thing that exists. Like, you're a G-man. Like, I don't like the FBI in any way, but like, I want to say that the message of this movie came across, which is that rich people don't go to jail. Like, rich people are not held accountable. I feel like they're probably also not getting the right message, which is the FBI is also bad, despite if they may do something like, or even not do something, but try to do something good, which is lock away this obvious fraudster and then not be able to do it. Like, hopefully people come away from this movie knowing that rich people don't go to jail, but I don't know. They may not. They may just like come away with uh, Jordan Belford's a badass and maybe I'll join the FBI if I can't do that. Like in the uh, catch me if you can kind of way. Another Leo DiCaprio movie. It's like maybe if you like don't make it in Wall Street, you can be that uh, Kyle Chandler character. That's a good point. Yeah. The we can't be Leo. We can be Tom Hanks. I, I saw something. I don't remember what it was of who they originally were going to cast, but Scorsese always working with uh, Leo. So kind of hard to imagine they would have made this movie with someone else. But um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the sort of the end of the movie. We've talked a, a bit about the, you know, him finally getting arrested, but really it's like a slap on the wrist given what, what he did. And um, I don't know if anyone has any, any, any last, uh, last comments about the film and where we uh before we call it i mean my final thought on this movie was uh this just came up in a conversation that i had with someone recently and i liked this movie thinking back on i hadn't watched it in a few years but i remember just like liking this movie and the person i was talking to she was like oh i hate that movie i'm like why do you hate it she was like oh it just makes this guy look like a hero and he's like a total piece of shit capitalist i'm like yeah but that's apparent right like you come away from it knowing that he's a piece of shit and she's like no, no, he's like kind of a hero in the movie. And I realized like at that point that I had had like a very different impression of that movie than maybe most other people had. And I don't know if it's just like she picks up on the obvious misogyny of the movie way more than I do and just came away from it hating that movie. Um, but I just kind of thought inherently like F and I talked to you in the group chat about whether Martin Scorsese meant for this guy to be a hero or a villain. It would be like a great like pretentious Hollywood director thing to do to have your character be so complicated that he is a hero to some people and a villain to others who get your actual message critiquing capitalism. And it's like, no, Scorsese wasn't even doing that. He wasn't even trying to like get one over and over. He was just like worshiping the wealth. It's like, God damn, that's so disappointing. There is one last thing that I, uh, I want to say he's given like one of his like motivational speeches. And to me, this is sort of like, I don't know if it's like the movie in a nutshell or just like American capitalism in a nutshell or something, but it's where he's like, he's like, I've been a rich man. I've been a poor man. And I would like, I would always choose a rich man because like if I have problems, like whatever, I'm like showing up in like a Mercedes Benz and a $2,000 suit and a $4,000 watch. And then he says this part, he goes, um, he goes, I want you to like deal with your problems by becoming rich. He tells that to like all of his people. Lean in. And, what was that? It's a book, Lean In. It was that woman who said that feminism is just becoming a female CEO. It's like the typical, like, lib girl yeah. boss book. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. But I just thought it was like, because no matter what the, the, yeah, girl bossing, the grind set shit, it's like never actually confront the system that you're interacting with, never confront, uh, you know, like the larger structures around you at all. It is a you against the world thing. And every problem, the way to deal with it is by being rich. Um, and I, I don't know. I just thought that was like pretty emblematic. Um, I also, the last thing I want to say it like way earlier, but when you say like everyone wants to be rich and like even people that are like glorifying this, I don't think that's the fucking case. I think motherfuckers want to be free, you know? And I think that like some of these movies, like as far as the glorification goes, it shows. And I think the thing that like is, like uh magnetic about it is the idea of like what if you could do anything at any time whatever you want and i just think that the reality is that people want to be free you know and i, I 
I guess that was just like one socialism. Isn't that literally what we were saying all day, every day is like, if you just stop trying to solve your problems, if you just stop trying to escape on an individual level, like stop trying to get enough money that you can escape from the systemic problems, then you can solve them on a communal level. But you cannot do it until you stop trying to just beat everyone else around you. Yeah. yeah one thing I want to I want to end with is is something that I say to a lot of people when I uh, when I do like lives on TikTok or I'm speaking with people about capitalism, I acknowledge, especially when I speak with like a capitalist or a business owner or a landlord, I tell them, I completely understand why you went in this direction. I understand because once you become a worker under capitalism, you realize how much it really, really sucks. It's, it's horrible. And especially under American capitalism is probably the worst, you know, uh, environment for a worker in the developed world. And you're, you're faced with a choice, uh, two, two paths. The path is either to, to advocate for workers or to become a capitalist. And a lot of people want to become a capitalist. They want to get, you know, own rental properties and, and, or have a hustle or something like that. And definitely the harder path that we've taken is to fight for the working class and, and actually identify as socialists, which is like, you know, persona non grata. Um, uh, for a lot of people in the United States, but you know, this is the harder, harder way. Jordan, uh, Belfort took, took the easy way, but you know, he did not go the, the, the direction of Lehman brothers. I think there is a way to become a capitalist and to stay under the radar, but you know, with his addiction involved as well, there was no way he was, he was going to be able to do that. Um, so yeah. Um, you know, thank you for having me on. And it was it was uh, nice to meet both of you guys, James yeah. and Mike. Hundred percent, Chris. Great talking to you guys. Yep, that was a great time. Uh, and, yeah, and thank you for bringing us all together for yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. Man. Again, so James, uh, comrade, workwear, and uh, Mike, uh, turn left this podcast and crits on all your platforms at BX Prol. Um, it's been uh, left of the projector, and you can like, subscribe on your platform of choice, and we will catch you again next week. I want to let you all know you can now support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash left the projector pod. I'll be bringing out new bonus content, listener requests, and so much more. Go check it out. Please support the show. As always, you can follow along on the socials, Instagram, left of the projector pod, and TikTok, for now, I guess, also at left of the projector pod. If merchandise and shirts are your thing, you can go to threadless.com left of the projector pod.com and check those out there. <laughs>